Welcome to the Westminster Chapel podcast. For more information and to support our mission to London and beyond, please visit westminsterchapel.org.uk. Fame. I'm going to live forever. I'm going to learn how to fly high. I feel it coming together. People will see me and cry. Fame. I'm going to make it to heaven, light up the sky with a flame. Fame. These are the words of the Oscar winning song from the film Fame. It made it to number one in the UK charts. And it is a description, I think, of the cultural zeitgeist of our generation today. The atmosphere that we're living in. An audition, a lifelong audition for adoration from others, that they might validate us, affirm us in the small stage to the big stage. Life is a stage. It's a performance from us for which to seek to win the approval of others in order to silence that inner screamingly dark voice of shame. Hi, my name is Howard It is my privilege to lead the historic church, Westminster Chapel. We're in the series of our lives. We are taking on the giant, the evil giant of shame, and we're fighting against it with the beautiful truths of God's word written to us by the Apostle Paul, this killer of Christians who becomes through seeing the risen Jesus Christ, the great preacher of the good news about Jesus He's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, beautiful words in this letter called Ephesians to a whole region of churches in the surrounding area around Ephesus. Powerful words from the first century, which are so relevant for us today as we seek to deal with the issue of shame in our own lives. There's hope. There's so much hope in the truth of God's word. Growing up, one of my heroes was Andre Agassi, the superstar tennis player. I loved this guy. I used to play tennis almost every day and I'd wear the Agassi clothes. I had the t-shirt and the shorts, the vomit covered stuff and the crazy denim with cycling shorts, kind of really kind of unusual outfit. Uh, I wanted his life. I wanted his fame. I wanted to be him. Only it turns out And we know this through an autobiography that Agassi wrote himself, that he often hated playing tennis. He had an overbearing dad, sometimes even violent, he says, who demanded the impossible from him. And Agassi just felt like he could never measure up. An example of this would be when Agassi finally wins Wimbledon. This great, perhaps considered to be the highest prize win in tennis. He's won. He called his father to celebrate, to rejoice in this, this victory. And what are his first, what are the dad's first words to Agassi? Not well done, but you should have, you should not have lost the fourth set. Ouch. That's, that's horrible. Again, even at the highest pinnacle of fame and success, you don't measure up. There's, there's more. You could have you could have been better. Agassi, he kind of this 
fathering impact i believe spirals out of control in his life and he gets into bad relationships and he takes drugs and all sorts of stuff you can read about it in his autobiography but my point that i want to make is is that fame is not the answer to shame it's a great lie a great, a great deception human applause is not the answer to that sense of shame and not measuring up and we all feel this sense of shame of not being good enough in different areas of our life, maybe in all of them, not being good enough as a father, a mother, as a parent, as a child, as a son to your parents, or as a, a, a academically, financially, in your career. Um, even as a Christian, you can feel like you just don't measure up enough, and it hurts. This coming short, it really hurts. It hurts to the point that we don't really feel comfortable enough to be able to even talk about it but talk about it we must we must face down shame if we want to find freedom from it today i want to make to you five points from these amazing two verses and the first of those points is that we are shameful children shame filled children whatever your earthly father was like we all experience rejection. Not the shame of being rejected so much, but the shame of our own rejecting, like Adam and Eve, of God. With every sin, we turn our back on him. And in that sense, it can feel like we're being disowned, sent out of Eden from the intimate presence of being able to walk with God. Adam and Eve lost that and we lose that and we can feel dis own disengaged detached from God and it can seem like God has given up on you he's given up on us actually it's not that at all God hasn't given up on you it's that you've given up on God is that your experience right now it can be the experience also for many Christians who lose this sense of intimate fellowship with God through sinful separation from God. And in losing the sense of closeness, they become confused and forget who they really are in Jesus Christ. But God reaches out to rejected, shame-filled kids and invites us, invites you into relationship with him that will clothe and cover your shame. The method is choosing. It's choosing. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world that's the method the purpose for adoption predestined for adoption as sons and this leads into the next point predestined children he predestined us paul says that's a big word pre before the foundation of the world destined is determined in his good pleasing and perfect will to do this it cannot be thwarted it cannot be stopped it cannot be undone no opposition against it could ever be successful this is god's destiny wow that's that i think is is good news but some think predestination is is bad news because that means that god doesn't predestine to save everyone doesn't plan to save everybody but if he did that You'd have to override the wills of those who choose to resist his loving 
advances. And if he was that kind of mind control type of god, then he'd be little more than an Adolf Hitler, a horrible divine despot dictator, which is not God at all. There's another objection people will voice here, and they'll say, well, then, if everything's predetermined and predestined, what's the point of prayer or of sharing the good news about Jesus with others, telling others about him? Well, if God isn't in absolute control, that means it rests on us, and that the slightest slip-up in your evangelism means that you are completely responsible for someone's eternal destination. Ouch! That is an awful lot of pressure and responsibility to carry that God wants to spare us from. There's another thing here, though, is that we would miss out in the fellowship of sharing in our father's work and knowing him and enjoying him through that. If it was all on God and there's no point in us doing it, then we wouldn't need to do it with him. And that would be really sad. <laughs> See, because as a dad, I love doing work projects with my kids. Sometimes they're DIY projects. Sometimes it's a craft thing. Right now, we're putting the finishing touches to our homemade Tracy Thunderbirds, Tracy Island. Here's an image of it, of what it looks like. Would it be less messy? Would it be less challenging? Would it be quicker for me to do that project on my own? Oh, you bet it would. But would it be as much fun no way. I love doing projects like this with my kids and I think they enjoy it too. How much more so with God? How much more delight is there, corporate shared delight, in partnering with him? God actually uses this doctrine of predestination to encourage the Apostle Paul not to give up. It's good news to him. When he feels weary, maybe burnt out, tired, he's doing ministry in a very difficult context, the sex-saturated city of Corinth, and God says to him, I have many people in this city. Don't give up, Paul. I have predestined many people all around you. They will say yes to the gospel. Wow. That's encouragement. Westminster Chapel, God has predestined people all around you, even in your family, who will say yes to the gospel when you preach it in word and in deed. This is a bit mysterious, though, isn't it? I mean, <laughs> have I really understood all of this? No. This is another moment to stop and just say that God is above us. He's transcendent. Yes, he condescends to meet us where we're at in Christ but his infinite mind is hard for us to wrestle and grapple with. So what seems like an apparent contradiction in terms of human logic, that God is absolutely in control and predestining, yet he allows for free will. And these both are true at the same time, yet they're only reconciled in God. And it speaks to the very nature of the mystery of God, his otherness. It shows us that the Christian faith isn't a man-made invention. We could not have made it up. If we were making up the Christian faith, we would have made it far more simplistic. Inevitably, we would have made it a merit-based conditional system, that you've got to do something to get this salvation, that you've got to earn it, because that's how we human beings think and operate. But God has made it unconditional. What do I mean by this? 
that there are no conditions of you being a good person, doing a certain number of good deeds to be adopted. You don't have to perform for your adoption to win the approval of your adopted parents, that they might choose you because you seem to be a nice kid to look after. There's none of that there. It's not about your intellect and your ability like that. Hey, you weren't just dense. You were brain dead before the formation of the world. You didn't really exist in the sense that we exist now. And so you couldn't. It doesn't depend on you at all. It's all on God, which means if you stuff up, you don't lose it. You can't. This is God's deliberate decision. It's not some kind of whimsical moment where he's decided oh, just just at a, you know, a drop of the hat. Oh, I can't have my own kids. So I'm going to adopt instead. No, before the foundation of the world, God predestined. This is God's deliberate intention and plan all along. It means that you are not unwanted. It means that there is a God of awesome goodness that's going forth and he wants to enrapture you and bring you into his goodness that you would trust him and let him adopt you into his family. Which leads to the third point, adopted sons. Yes, I have changed the language deliberately here from children to sons. It's not sexist. Don't misunderstand. Men have to get used to being called the bride of Christ. Women have to get used to being called sons. Why? Because that's theologically significant. The sons, the eldest son inherited everything. And that's a key point that Paul is seeking to make here. He's importing this theological term adoption from the Greco-Roman world in order to help us understand the heights of our salvation. If you like, we have been climbing up and up and up and up in this chapter of Ephesians to the great heights. Now we've reached this phenomenal height of adoption. You see, regeneration, being born again is great. It's a wonderful thing, but adoption is even greater. We're not just saved we are to be savoured as sons. So your, your ransom isn't just paid for your sin. You've not just been set free from sin by a great benefactor. And then, OK, go off and live your life. I've rescued you now. You go and do what you want to do. No, no, we've been brought in. We've been rescued to have a permanent relationship with the glorious one who's liberated us. You're not just made a son, you're also given the position of being a son. All the legal rights, the, the rank, the privileges, all the benefits of this glorious position of sonship. I think there's a great picture of this in the 1959 blockbuster film, I love this original film, Ben-Hur. Judah Ben-Hur, by this point in the film, is now a slave. And he is just about being or his adoption is being formalized by Quintus Arius. The formalities of adoption have been completed. Quintus, this wealthy warship commander, says, you are now the legal bearer of my name and heir to my property. And he gives Judah Ben-Hur his ring, very significant, his seal and his authority. See, you are not a, a spiritual orphan who becomes a, a slave, if you like. No, you become a, a son. You're given the right to call upon the name of your father, the character, the glory of God. You're given 
privileged access right into his presence. There's an invitation to intimacy that is always available and will always be responded positively to when you move towards him. That's what this name Abba, Abba means to describe the Father God. It's a Hebrew word of endearment, closeness with the Father. Jesus uses this very word in Mark chapter 14 in his hour, his time of desperate need in the Garden of Gethsemane as he's praying so intensely into his forthcoming death and resurrection. Wow. Adoption, you see, it's not simply some kind of mental truth alone. It's also an emotional experience, a reality. You're a son, a child of God. Children are allowed the divine kind of uh, given the divine cheek, allowed this cheek to kind of approach God, to come before the throne of grace whenever they want, whenever they need. They're in, we're invited in to experience him. Both Jew, Abba, and Gentile, the word pater, together can call on God. Notice again this theme of unity in diversity, this close communion, this deepest longing for belonging as a shame-filled outcast can be yours only in Jesus Christ. No other religion, no other worldview or philosophy can offer you this relationship of closeness and of reverence to a God who is awesome. As an heir, as a son and therefore an heir, you get everything. You get a new glorified body. You get to enjoy that body in a world without sin. And you get to rule even over angels in the new heavens and the new earth. You're given God's divine authority to rule his kingdom for his glory. Wow, that is such unbelievable privilege. But we don't get all of that now. There is a now and a not yet reality to this. You get a down payment of this now in part so that you would be absolutely assured that you will get it all in full then when Jesus comes again. As a reward, if you like, that's awaiting us. That should help us to live right now of glory that is coming. Not to lose heart, even when life is difficult and tough. These past couple of weeks, our youngest, my son Isaac, he's three, has started nursery. It's a school nursery, you wear a school uniform. Um, and after sort of six months of COVID, it's very different and the environment's quite different to go in and the masks sort of atmosphere with, with hand washing and stuff like that. And he has not wanted to go to school. He's scared. He's, I think, anxious, worried about it as a whole experience, doesn't want to do that. He's enjoyed being at home uh, and, and all of that going on. So he gets upset. He cries. He kind of wrestles us through taking to school. You have to sort of drop him off to give him over to the teachers. We've been the last ones in a couple of times. And he's you're prying him, literally trying to pry him off. And the teacher's sort of pulling him away. It's a horrible experience. Um, on one morning, he actually got away and ran down the street <laughs> saying, I'm not going to school. So we had an idea. He loves Thunderbirds. 
So we've said to him, okay, if you can go to school really well without a fuss for five mornings, every morning that you do that, you get one point. And if you get five of those points, then you can get the number one Thunderbird toy, the number one rocket. It's a little kind of small thing, it's not a major thing, but he loves it. And he wants this prize with all his, all his heart. I tell you, the next morning, he was like a different child. He went to school with enthusiasm and with excitement. He was almost jumping up and down outside the door and talking to the teacher that he was going to get the number one. They had no idea what he was talking about, but they were really pleased. And they were sort of shocked as well at this change in, in behavior. There was a future reward that he knew he was he was going to get. And he was excited about that was coming. It was guaranteed for him as, as long as he did something simple, very straightforward. It didn't require almost anything off him than just doing the normal stuff that every kid would do. It's not a perfect illustration, but I want you to see in it the power of a reward to help us live right now. Let me give you another illustration. Imagine that somebody is due to inherit from their mother a significant amount of money mostly tied up in the property. It's £300,000, but the mother is no longer very well and she needs to go into care. So they sell the property to pay for the mother's care and the mother's there in care. And only she lives on year after year, amazingly, wonderfully. And so do the bills at £30,000 a year. The house was £300,000 and they're now into the 10th year. And there's, there's really nothing left. All the inheritance has, has gone and it's been been squandered, dissipated like that. Oh, it's just... And, and the family in some ways are sort of, you know, wrongly disappointed. Yes, they've got this extra years, but they, they, they've lost something of this money. It's all been squandered on, on care and she hasn't been able to live well. It just seems so, so wasteful and disappointing like that. But what if that house actually sold not for £300,000, but with six extra zeros after it? What if it sold actually for £30 billion? And so the money spent on care amounts to 0.001%. You might say that was negligible, barely even noticeable and irrelevance in some senses. Now, this is interesting, Howard. Nice illustration. But what's, what's your point with this? Well, it comes here. In Romans chapter 8, Paul writes to the Roman Christians suffering there about being heirs with Christ, inheritors with Christ. And he immediately follows this with a section on future glory. This is what he writes. He says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. For creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God, the children of God in all their glory. Whatever COVID-19 troubles or trials you're going through right now, they're about light and momentary compared to what's coming. I don't mean to downplay them and to say they're not significant. I know people in our church battling with cancer, battling with difficult bosses, battling with their finances and battling with difficult relationships, all that sort of stuff. I get that. And it is significant now. But you need to know and see it from the perspective of eternity. 
that there is a day coming when all of that is going to be swallowed up with the zero after zero after zero after zero greater glory that is coming to you as an adopted child of God to the point where it's going to seem almost irrelevant, negligible. That suffering, that cost compared to the glory that is going to be fully yours when Jesus comes again. This is why great preachers like Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, they would say that adoption is the highest privilege the gospel affords. Or J.I. Packer, in this brilliant book, Knowing God, he would say, to be right with God the judge is a great thing, but hey, to be loved and cared for by God the Father is a greater. When Judah Ben-Hur is given his father, his adopted father's ring he says he's going to wear it with gratitude with affection and with honor how much more so should you wear your shame covering status as a beloved child of god hey eh? with real gratitude with real affection for what he's done and with honor honor and reverence this great God, our Heavenly Father. This should awaken you, stir you to want to worship God and live for him rightly. The reward that is coming, which is absolutely certain that you'll get it. It's the fourth point. Worshipful children. Adopted as sons to the praise, the glory of his grace. This phrase here, to the praise of his glory, repeats three times in verses 3 to 14. And it comes as a brilliant refrain to structure this outburst of praise in a Trinitarian way to the Father, the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. This is expressing who we are as a people. We are a people of praise. We are a people called by definition to be worshippers, to be exuberant, to be filled up with joy in knowing whose we are, letting it flow out of us to the rest of the world. It's wonderful. We're to be God's happy, clappy children. And what are we to be most praising about? Most celebratory about well here it's interesting not to the praise of the glory of his holiness important as that is or to the praise of the glory of his love important as that is but to the praise of the glory of his grace because grace is the means by which we gain entry we're to celebrate the outshine the going forth of his unmerited favor to us and to do that we have to stop and just just take this this moment actually to recognise that this is incredible. Why, why should God show any goodness towards us in, in, in the face of our opposition and our, our pride and our sin? That we don't deserve just no goodness being, we deserve judgment. We should look to the cross and see in Christ's suffering and his horrific death that that is what we deserve. That's the cost 
of our sin. And yet that God should treat us undeserving people with the privilege, understanding that we can now stand through faith in Christ as children of God and heirs, heirs with him as <laughs> an inheritance coming. Wow, this is this is extraordinary. Let the grace of God, the unmerited favor of God, destroy any discouragement that you might be experiencing because God is for you in Christ. His favor is seeking to break in upon you. That's just the nature of God, the Trinitarian, the happy land of the Trinity, seeking to shower forth blessing upon all who would respond to him. This is the unhuman, unmerited favor of God that we get to be blessed by. I tell you, it deserves so much more than our kind of understated praise. We should be running out to the streets, opening the windows to our homes and shouting out, I'm a child of God. Hallelujah. I'm not a slave to sin anymore. I have been set free and rescued. He loves me. This takes me to the final point. Point number five, we are beloved children to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has blessed us in the beloved. This is a deliberate phrase in the beloved that Paul is using to take us to the cross to see the cost of your salvation, the price of your adoption, that the father would willingly send. He would so love us that he would give off, give up his one and only son, beloved son, and send him to die and suffer for your salvation. Such is the love of God. He loved you so much he'd be willing to do that. That the father looks down on all the cruel treatment of his son and all the pain he will experience as a father, and yet he will still commission this great act of salvation. It pains me to think of even the slightest harm that my kids would endure. It hurts me to my deepest core that that could happen to them, yet that I'd ever commission that or, 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 or cause that in some way. Yet here is God willing to do that to express how much he loves you, how how great his love is is, is for you. Now, if the question about cruelty here doesn't come up, isn't this cruel of God to send his only son, Jesus, to suffer? It doesn't come up. If you don't ask that question, then you may not fully grasp the fullness of God's love. Now, of course, it's not cruelty because Jesus is going willingly. He's volunteering to do this. He wants to do this. You couldn't stop him from doing this. This is his heart's deepest desire to purchase your salvation. And we see here the Godhead, Father, Son and Holy Spirit working completely together in your salvation. It's the beloved of God dying, taking the penalty for your sins so that you can become beloved of God. This is why the Apostle of Love, John writes, 
see see what kind of love the father has lavished on us or paul from romans chapter 8 he who did not spare his only son how will he also give us all things this is the most extraordinary act of love imaginable in the world that god is seeking to express to you that you you could be a recipient of do you have any idea just how loved by god that you are Jesus puts it like this in John chapter 17. He would say that the God in his prayer to the Father would love you as much as God the Father has loved him, the Son, for all eternity. That you get to be invited in to the great love of the Trinity. This is how you have been blessed. Blessed in the beloved. By faith. I know of only one place in the New Testament where this word also occurs. It's in Luke's first century biography and it's chapter one, verse 28. And it's translated there highly favoured as it speaks of Mary having been chosen to carry and give birth to God's son, to Jesus. And so similarly, you're blessed through faith. You are blessed to have God through the Holy Spirit take up residence inside you, Christ in you, the hope of glory, to bring to birth the fullness of what it means to be a child of God, the full experience of your adoption in Christ, that you are accepted by the one whom it matters most, that you are not a slave to sin any longer you are a beloved son that you're not alone an outcast wandering on the outside of everything you are invited in god is in you and he's with you and you're not some weakling without power you are given divine authority to serve and glorify him don't just measure up in christ you go way beyond any earthly standards of comparison that make no space available for shame because God's love is filling your mind and outlook. There may be moments where you act like the prodigal son or his religious elder brother. Now and again, you slip, you fall away, but God will never, never, never stop acting like the prodigal father towards you. And the moment you turn back, the moment you come to your senses, the moment that you confess and repent of your sins, he will receive you and he will celebrate with great joy with you as he seeks to pour out the glory of his grace to you. Your adoption is final. It cannot be undone. It's sealed in the blood of God's beloved Son, so let praise resound. You're in God's family now, full of joy, holy ones, telling everyone how your shame has been undone. Let's pray. God of awesome grace, come right now through the person of the Holy Spirit. Release your presence, Lord God, to help us to eradicate all thoughts of shame by filling our minds and our hearts with the glory of who you are, that there be no space 
for shame to occupy in our lives any longer as the truths of who we are in you by faith in you destroy them and slay them help us to experience and understand the fullness of our privileged position as sons of God listening to sermon audio from Westminster Chapel. If you'd like to partner with us in making disciples and sharing the gospel, please consider making a one-off or regular donation. Visit westminsterchapel.org.uk forward slash giving to find out how.